My first sermon on the life of Saul uh, focused on his conversion. And if you have ever had anyone that you've been praying for for years, whether it's a friend or a relative or an enemy, and you've begun to doubt whether or not this person can even be converted, I would challenge you to pray verses 1 through 9. And uh, just meditate upon that passage. It's a fabulous passage that will stir up faith in God's sovereign grace to be able to change any heart. Any heart. The second sermon looked at Saul's call to ministry in verses 10 through 16. And we saw that over the centuries, uh, Reformed people and other people have used this passage as one of the passages to evaluate calls uh, to the ministry. And of course, uh, Reformed people recognize that there are Uh, things that are unique to each person's call, Uh, just like the other apostles didn't have the same call to the ministry that the Apostle Paul did. And yet in the fivefold ministries that God has given of apostles, prophets, evangelists, um, pastors, and teachers, in that fivefold ministry, it has a, a different kind of a calling than other callings that God has given. And we saw that this passage a Reformed people have shown, has the essential elements that are bound up in that call. And as Pastor, uh, PCA Pastor Mike Ross has pointed out, we are living in a time of crisis in the area of calling. And if you did not uh, uh, hear that sermon last time, I would encourage you to get the CD because I think this is a helpful corrective to that crisis. Now today I would like to continue to use Saul's life as kind of a window at looking at how Uh, God makes all things new in a believer's life. There's not just a new heart and a new calling, but there's also a new family, a new worldview, a new warfare, a new fellowship, a new future. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, that does not mean that every change that a believer is going to be experiencing has been fully manifested at the time of his conversion because our whole Christian life is a life of growth, right? And a life of change. But every change in principle is experienced at the time of a person's conversion. And I want to kind of demonstrate that uh, to some degree this morning. In fact, some of you have shared with me your testimonies that this has been what made your conversion a time of real confusion because you were so excited about uh, coming to salvation. You started sharing with other people and they're backing off from you because they're not interested in the things that you're interested in. In fact, some of you have lost very close friends uh, when you started sharing with them your enthusiasm about the gospel. Without realizing it, your whole orientation to life had been radically changed. It was different. All things had become new. You had new values. Uh, You had new feelings, new ways of thinking, new perspectives on the past and the present and the future. Now, it's true. All those things are going to continue to be framed and continue to be developed uh, throughout life. But it's clear a major change happened at the time of your regeneration. Uh, The things that uh, perhaps uh, used to interest you now have become distasteful. They bother you. Things that used to be boring to you now grip your soul. They grip your attention. Uh, Some of you have even had family members who turned against you because you're no longer interested in doing some of the sinful things that they were interested in, in, in doing. And that transference from one kingdom to another kingdom sometimes is a painful process. 
uh, that people go through. And so as we go through this passage, I want it to stir up in you not only a, a renewed marvel at the incredible changes that God wrought in your life at the time of your conversion, but also a sensitivity to new people when they're coming to the faith as to how you can minister in their lives. So I hope this will be an encouragement. Let's look first of all at Paul's new family. Verse 17 says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house. Uh, in verses 13 through 14, Ananias didn't want to go to his house. Okay? He was arguing with the Lord that Saul was not a friend. He was an enemy. He was not so thrilled with the idea that uh, Saul was going to be coming uh, into the church. But you see, adoption is not a choice that you make. That's God's choice, right? In fact, even if you think about your own uh, natural siblings, uh, none of us had a choice as to what brothers or sisters we were going to have in the, uh, in the families that we had. God made that choice for us, and the same is true in terms of our spiritual relationships. We may prefer uh, to pick which Christians we're going to be in relationship with. God says, no, that's not your choice. I've already chosen who you're going to be in relationship with, and that's exactly what he tells Ananias in verses 15 through 16. He says, no, go. I've chosen this relationship uh, for you. So he obeys. And verse 17 continues and says, laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul. What incredible words. Because just three days before, he had been enemy Saul. Okay, he was not a brother. Saul was trying to stamp out Christianity. He was one of the people that Jesus had previously said concerning the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. <clears throat> John 8, verse 44. So he wasn't brother Saul. He was in a totally different family. He had different brothers and sisters. He had a different father, Satan, right? And yet conversion changed that instantly so that Saul's status was now a brother to Ananias. And this is the marvel of God's grace. First thing we see, he's got a new father, new brothers, new sisters, a new relationship that God has ushered him into. Now, it's true, Saul's still going to have to learn the ropes of how to relate to these brothers and sisters. And some of them are going to have to learn the ropes of how to relate to uh, Saul as well. But the instant of his conversion, God was making all things new and de facto, he was a brother, whether Ananias recognized it or not. The hymn writer says, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. What brings family relationship is not our preferences. And I think that's so important to understand. Uh, what brings family relationship is people's union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. God binds us together. And so Ananias uh, says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a similar way, God calls each of us to reach out in relationship with other believers. We're supposed to reach out. One of the all new things that God has made when he brought you into fellowship, whether it was into fellowship with our Calvinistic church or another Arminian church, he's brought Calvinists into fellowship with Arminians and dispensationalists into fellowship uh, with covenantalists. 
See, it's, it, it's not our theology that unites. It's our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our theology brings us into deeper and deeper fellowship and union. And we do need to be as iron sharpening iron and encouraging people to grow in their understanding of the Scripture. But just as natural brothers and sisters don't always see eye to eye, and yet they're brothers, right? We don't always see eye to eye in the Christian church either. And yet we need to have a mutual respect for one another because we've got a common Father, a common Savior, and a common indwelling Holy Spirit. And so there's a family relationship. Uh, Verse 18 speaks of a family provision. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Now I find it interesting that God did not heal Saul until Saul came into family relationship. Now, he could have. He'd healed other people before they came into family relationship. But it's almost as if he wants to make sure that Saul, who's going to be a pretty important person, does not start off acting independently. He forces him to be dependent upon Ananias and later to be dependent upon the body of Christ, the the rest of the believers there uh, in in Damascus. And as a family member, Saul has new privileges and new responsibilities. New privileges can be seen in the healing and the hospitality that he received. Responsibilities can be seen in the baptism that ushered him into this family relationship. And in the same way, the moment a person is converted, he is ushered into family provisions that he never had before. Let me read you some scriptures. Philippians 4.19, Paul says, And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. All your need. Now think about 1 Timothy 5.8. Paul really gets on the case of fathers who do not provide for their families. And he says, if you don't provide for your families, you are worse than an unbeliever. You've denied the faith. He says, that's how important this is in the family. Why? Because they are to be models of God's fatherhood. And yet, how do we many times treat God the Father? As if He's going to hold out on us. As if He's not going to provide for us. No, our Father is a faithful Father. He is a good Father. God's family prayer for you is 3 John 2. That you may prosper in all things and be in health, even as your soul prospers. And that runs so contrary to the asceticism of many believers. Many believers assume to be a believer means to be deprived. I assumed that for a number of years. In fact, I many times felt guilty if I had uh, a number of things. It's like, uh, what, what gives here? Our Father is a faithful Father. He's a good Father. And there is a family provision that begins to happen the moment a person is converted. In fact, God's already set up a bank account for you in Jesus Christ. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And those... When those needs arise, you go to the Father, and He's a good Father who provides uh, as you need. And so for me, this is a real encouragement. It's a real encouragement. God's made all things new, and one of the new things is the incredible provisions that He has, the generous provisions that He has for His children. Verse 19 speaks of the family fellowship. It says, So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, some have concluded from Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, which says that Paul suffered the loss of all things when he became a believer. Okay, so some have concluded from that verse that Saul lost his family, 
lost his house, lost his family inheritance. Uh, he was just cut off by his relatives from that because he had b- become converted. And there are a number of people, when they become converted, have gone through similar trauma, similar heartbreak. And this makes family fellowship within the church all the more precious. Mark 10 says that there is no one who, when they become a believer, has lost their family who will not receive 100-fold in this life. And uh, fellowship is one of the things that he restores to us. And so it says that Saul spent some time with the disciples. The second thing that happened to Paul was that he was given a whole new perspective on truth. And we speak of this as a shift in worldview. He had a brand new worldview. Now, it was not fully developed. Um, It was going to continue to be strengthened and developed. But in seed form, that worldview was already planted within his life. And what is remarkable to me about this is Saul already knew the Scriptures. He probably had vast chunks of Scriptures memorized. If he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, you can bet he knew his Bible. And yet, after his conversion, he sees the Scriptures in a whole new light. It's just like the Lord turns on the lights and it's like, wow! It's, he, he sees the same Scriptures, but he sees them totally differently in how they relate to life. And you see the same thing when people come to Christ uh, today. Uh, let's take a look at verse 20. <clears throat> it says, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Not just a human Messiah, but the Son of God. Just three days before, he had preached that Jesus was a blasphemer and anybody that followed Jesus needed to be executed. Now he's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, this is a radical transformation of his thinking. And in the same way, even the most religious people, when they are regenerated, find that there is a radical transformation in the way in which they look at God, the way in which they look at life. Even if they believed that Jesus was the Son of God previously, all of a sudden they view their relationship to to Him in a totally new light. His Lordship comes in a totally new light. His providence, everything about Jesus uh, comes with totally new eyes. And as Saul begins to preach this new worldview, the people are really astonished at what they see. Verse 21, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not He who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? I mean, his reputation had preceded, preceded him. And the, the people, they're just absolutely amazed by what they see. This is the first part of apologetics. A transformed life. Okay? It's the first part of it. The second part is verbal. You know, where we're defending the faith. But I really consider the first part of apologetics, a changed life, to be one of the most important aspects of our apologetics. Uh, There have been a number of surveys that have been done over the last 50 years as to how people came to Christ. By far the majority of people in America over the past 50 years have said they came to Christ because they saw the change that came into a person's life in one of their friends or in one of their family members. They saw a radical change that happened. And that's what was going on here. The people could not deny that a change had happened in Saul. A radical change had happened. Now, bad lifestyle can be a turnoff for apologetics, but certainly uh, a transformation is important. Now, verse 22, 
goes on and it says that Saul got better and better at the verbal part of apologetics as well. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Saul preached with a power that was not his own. Uh, When it says he increased all the more in strength, the word strength there is the word that's used in Ephesians chapter 6 for spiritual warfare, where we're warring not with our own weapons, but with Christ's. Uh, It says, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. It's mighty, irresistible power. It's the word that's used in Hebrews 11 to describe the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament who by faith are receiving a power not their own in subduing kingdoms and doing all kinds of things. It's the word used in Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so Paul's worldview was more than intellectual. It was a dependence upon something outside of himself. Uh, it, it, It factored into the way he thought. And the results were explosive. The word for confounded there is the word used in Acts 2, verse 6, when all the Jews come running together when they see the wind and the tongues, and they're confounded, it says. Well, here God has unleashed a mini Pentecost upon this city, and uh, it's confounded that. And it could lead to only one of two reactions, either conversions, and many conversions happened, or opposition. And there was a lot of opposition that happened. And this opposition is another new thing that most people receive when they first become believers. They have a fight, a new fight that they had not anticipated. Verses 23 through 24. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Now, the opposition you receive at uh, your conversion probably was not this dramatic. Uh, But most Christians find that Satan is doing anything he can to discourage these new believers by bringing opposition into their lives. And uh, we need to be aware of that. We need to be ready to encourage new believers. These disciples did exactly that. Verse 25 says, Then the disciples took him by night, let him down through the wall in a large basket. Uh, One of the leaders that uh, I was ministering to uh, two weeks ago in China uh, had just the week before just narrowly escaped uh, capture. He had already served, I don't know how many years in prison, but uh, he leaped over a wall uh, when the PSB bust into the building and the other believers were able to stall them long enough for him to escape. But whether the battle is visible or whether it is an invisible battle, it is impossible for a new believer to avoid the battlefield. Impossible. When you left the kingdom of Satan and you joined God's kingdom, you instantly became an enemy of Satan. And uh, here's the interesting thing. God is the one who by His grace puts you into enmity. In other words, into hostility with Satan and Satan's kingdom and Satan's seat. God does it. He's the one who makes this new fight. And I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And verse 15 to see this has been the case all the way back to Adam and Eve. Uh, Satan had succeeded in getting Adam and Eve to rebel against God, to become uh, at enmity with God and uh, become friends with him. Well, God changes the situation. He reaches out in his sovereign grace, even though they're running from him, they're hiding from him. He regenerates them, pulls them back to himself. 
and makes all things new. And one of the things that he produces is a new fight. Look at Genesis 3 and verse 15. It says, And I, this is God speaking to Satan, And I will put enmity, that word enmity means hostility, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice that God puts that enmity between Satan and the woman. Previously, she had been covenanted in friendship with Satan, with the devil. Okay, she followed his advice. Like the Pharisees, she was a child of Satan, but now God has put her into a new position of being an adversary to Satan. And so God's sovereign grace, when it comes in, part and parcel of that is He ushers us into a new battle. Every believer has that. Now, if you turn back to Acts chapter 9, we see a provision that God gives to sustain us in this battle. It is a new fellowship. Now, Saul already had fellowship with uh, believers in Damascus, but he's now in Jerusalem. He wants fellowship there, and he's being shunned. He is being uh, pushed out of this fellowship. Verse 26, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. And you can appreciate their skepticism. Uh, They had received a lot of hurt from this uh, guy. But Saul needed fellowship, and this fellowship was being thwarted. Now, there's a lot of things that can thwart new believers from being able to enter into true, genuine fellowship with other believers. Um, It can be things like insecurity or pride or bitterness. It can be cultural or economic or doctrinal differences, but Satan will do everything in his power to try to keep a new believer from coming into the enjoyment of the all new things that God has been making for this believer. And in some ways, it's disappointing that these apostles didn't have the faith to venture out and test him. Was there nobody amongst those apostles who had the gift of discernment? Hard to believe none of them had it, you know, where they could go out and test and see whether this is a genuine conversion or not. Uh, What happened to bold Peter? Uh, What happened to Andrew? Andrew in the past had been the one to reach out, you know, and to include people, to bring them in. But at this stage, for whatever reason, they did not do so. And we as well need to be constantly on guard about the things that hinder our fellowship with one another. Because fellowship is one of the all new things that Christ has given to the church. And we need to make sure we do not despise that gift. Now, God uses Barnabas to minister to Saul. And uh, this must have been very, very encouraging to Saul because no one believes in him here. Everybody's suspicious of him. And um, uh, there are people with the gift of mercy like Barnabas who feel this spirit-given compulsion to reach out and to befriend them. And so even here you can see the usefulness of how God makes every person different within the body of Christ. They're all needed. So look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas was his advocate. And it must have been very gratifying for Saul to see the suspicion dissolving and these guys reaching out and giving him a big bear hug, welcoming him into the fellowship. Uh, Fishy bear hugs. Maybe they weren't fishing recently, but uh, 
uh, all of these fishermen uh, saying, yeah, we want you in fellowship with us uh, at this point. God may be calling some of you, actually probably calling all of you to be Barnabases, and to reach out when you see a lonely visitor standing in the hallway and welcome them in, you know, and introduce them to people and uh, be a person who tries to facilitate this fellowship within the body of Jesus Christ. We should not underestimate the importance of fellowship in the life of the believer. If it was important for Saul, it's important for each one of us. Verse 28, So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. The fellowship was the base out of which strong ministry was being engaged in by Paul, whose name at this point is Saul. And I want you to notice that the coming in precedes the going out. The fellowship precedes the ministry. Okay? <clears throat> uh, we really do need it. If even an old, tough cookie like Saul needed fellowship, that <laughs> we need it as well. Um, I've seen people who put themselves in isolation and what ends up happening over a period of time is they become more and more vulnerable to stumbling and to failure. Just as coals from a bonfire, if they're heaped together, they're kept close, they'll stay hot sometimes for days without any fire. But if they're scattered and they're not touching each other, they go out in a few minutes or within an hour many times. In the same way, believers lose their fire if they are isolationistic, if they do not have genuine fellowship and relationship and accountability with each other. Because Saul ministered with the help and the accountability of the church, when trouble comes in verse 29, the church is right there to help them through that trouble in verse 30. Okay? Um, in the old creation, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. He brought fellowship. Sin broke that fellowship. And in the new creation, this is one of the things that God restores. The last new thing that's mentioned in this passage is a new future. And I just want to look at three things relating to Saul's future. Instead of being a leader in the Jewish community like he used to be, verse 29 gives a hint as to something that was going to plague him for the rest of his life, and that is opposition uh, from the Jews. It says, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. And this must have been hard for Paul because according to Galatians 1 verse 14, previous to this, Paul was one of the most eminent citizens in all of Israel. Okay? He was used to being in charge, to calling the shots, to being respected. His credentials were impeccable. Everywhere he went, people instantly revered him, respected him. Uh, gave honor to him, but now the very people who used to hold him in high esteem are out to kill him. How fickle, you know, is the praise of man. And if you are not out and out for Jesus because you long for the praises of men, you are going to be sadly disappointed. Not only are you going to be disappointed, you're going to be disappointing to both man as well as to Christ. Saul's desire, his intent was to serve one person and to please one person, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ, and others he would only serve and please secondarily through the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he was out and out for the Lord, because that was his focus, he was powerful. He was explosive uh, force everywhere that he went. He broke through the high places that Satan had erected, the strongholds that uh, had led uh, men and women into captivity, and he brought them out 
into liberty, into Christ's kingdom. And the more successful he was, well, the more opposition he received. And so in one sense, this opposition is not a bad thing. It's just showing how incredibly successful his work really was. His future was to be, in part, one of controversy and persecution. That's not what God holds out for everybody, okay? He's, he, he was called to that in a special way. But every believer has a new future because God has made all things new. Saul's future was also to be one of constant travel. Verse 30 says, When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. And this is one of a long series of um, moves as he is being chased from one part of the empire to the other by his enemies. He had constant travel. Now again, God's probably not called most of you to constant travel. He's the apostle after all. He's the one who's sent to travel. But the point is, God has already foreordained all kinds of good works that we are to be walking in. There's a new future that God's created for us. The last indicator of a different future was the spiritual success that God sent in the wake of Saul's ministry wherever he traveled. Verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. I want you to notice that it's not just in times of persecution that God purifies and causes the church to grow. He does do that, but He does so in times of peace as well. There are some Christians who think the only time the church can grow is during times of persecution, so they've actually prayed for persecution in America. And I don't, I'm not sure that that's a biblical thing to do. 1 Timothy 2 says we should pray we would not have persecution. Pray for peace, that we might lead peaceable and quiet lives. Psalm 122.6 commands us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 29.7 says, Seek the peace of the city in which you dwell, for in its peace you will have peace. And so, let's not be masochists, okay? <laughs> and wishing for uh, persecution so we can have a little bit of the glory, you know, that martyrs have had in the past. No, the early church was not masochistic. They were grateful for this respite from persecution. It says they had peace and were edified. In other words, it was a good thing for that. And the edification is manifested in three ways. It says they walked in the fear of the Lord, they experienced the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were growing like crazy. That's almost subject material for a whole new sermon all of its own, isn't it? But is that not an incredible prayer that we could be praying for our own church? Is that not a prayer you could be praying for your family, your own individual ministries, that you'd be walking in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that God would multiply the things that you are doing? I think it is a, a great prayer. God's goals for our future are for good and not for calamity. If you're a believer, Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Whereas previously, previous to the conversion, everything was working together for your bad. <laughs> now that you're converted, everything is working together for your good. Is that not encouraging? God's given a whole new future the moment you are converted. And so, brothers and sisters, you have a family that you need to value. You have a new worldview that you need to study diligently and live more and more consistently with. You have a new fight that you must not be running from. It's a spiritual battle that God has ushered every believer into. You have a new fellowship and a whole new future. 
And there may come times when Satan tempts you, just like he tempted me in the past, to live as if I was still the old Phil Kaiser, tempting you to live in light of the old rather than light of the new that Christ has called you to. But it's very important that you be driven by God's vision for the future rather than being driven by the past. Satan's going to tempt you. Oh, you're not going to amount to a hill of beans because look at all of the failures you've had in the past. Forget the past. Be driven by the new things he's created for your, your future. Augustine was one of the most important uh, church fathers in the 4th century. Uh, but before he was converted, he was a pretty immoral person. Uh, lived a pretty loose lifestyle. He slept around and cursed and gambled and stole. And when he got converted to the Lord, yes, God did make all things new, but that did not mean he didn't have temptations from his old life. He did have temptations to live in light of the old rather than in the new. And one day in the marketplace, a a woman came up to him and uh, called him by name. And he immediately fled from her with all speed. This was a woman he used to live sinfully with. He fled from her with all speed. And she says, Augustine, it is I. And uh, as the story says, uh, Augustine turned around and he says, but it is not I. The old Augustine is dead and I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Okay, he resisted temptation by fixing his eyes on Christ and the old new things that Christ had called him to and had created him for. And it gave him a power, it gave him an ability uh, to think differently and act differently in this world. And so you need to view everything in a whole new light. The verse that I started the sermon with continues with that theme. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. There's a new life. There's a new calling. There's a making of all things new by the power of His grace. And so, brothers and sisters, I charge you to embrace it, to enjoy it, and to live it to God's glory. Amen. Father, we thank You that You have made all things new. There is no way that we could uh, turn a new leaf and make a New Year's resolution that we could make all things new because from the old man, from our flesh, from ourselves, nothing good could flow. And so, Father, we come to You once again and we rely upon that which Christ has purchased for us and we want to enter more and more into these new things that You have created for us. Thank You for Your provisions. And Father, may each one in this congregation uh, have such an encouragement by the provisions that You have given that they walk in the light of the new rather than in the old. Help us, Father, to live as those who have died to our old selves and have risen through the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ to a whole new life. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.